Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, journalists, entrepreneurs, and more about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in the modern world. I'm Princeton freshman Nathan Shin, stepping in today for Tiger Gao, and I'm excited to be here with Dr. Perminder Jessel. Dr. Jessel has worked with companies in the Fortune 50, like the Ford Motor Company, Atlantic Richfield Company, and Lucent Technologies. After her work in these industries, she decided to focus on promoting positive culture shifts and combating inequities with an emphasis on education and the educational system. She became the founding executive director of the ACT Foundation in 2012 and was a program officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. From 2017 to 2019, she led uh, the Learn and Work Futures Group at the Institute for the Future, as well as co-founded a few startups. And in 2018, she founded socialtech.ai. And we'll get into much of this in just a bit. But first, I would like to introduce my co-host, Aditya Golapuri. This interview marks Policy Punchline's first collaboration with Envision. And uh, just as I am the representative for Policy Punchline, Aditya is here from Envision. Uh, I'm Aditya, as Nathan mentioned. I'm a second year at Princeton, uh, focusing on computer science, and I'm here from Envision. Uh, we're a group that does a lot of work with tech policy and thinking about the far future, as well as with the intersection of uh, policy goals like education and healthcare, and how we can use how can use technology to further those. So we're going to start off uh, talking about some of uh, Dr. J Jessel's important work in equity and access. Uh, a lot of her work at both the ACT and the Gates Foundation focused on enabling those who have to choose to be in the workforce to still receive an education. Given the increasing rate of change in the knowledge base of most industries, many politicians have claimed that in the future, all of us will need to be continuously upskilling while in the workforce. How do you see traditional educational institutions adapting to the rapid change of educational demands uh, in the workforce? I love that question. First of all, Aditya and Nathan, thank you so much for having me on and congratulations on your first uh, collaboration. That's kind of pretty cool. Um, so as far as equity and access goes and um, what higher education institutions need to do to change, I wanted to provide a little bit of perspective about myself. So um, I'm an immigrant from India, from Punjab. And so I finished my high school in uh, from Gurnanik Public Schools, Sarabhanagar, Ludhiana. And when I came to America, I came to a little town called Creston, Iowa, Southwest Iowa. And I grew up there some too, because we went back and forth. And India and Iowa have two things in common. They both begin with I and end with A. And that was about it. And so, um, so when I came to Iowa, what was really cool was that the chancellor there of the community college system, uh, she was like, oh, wow, you're from India? We love Indian students. Um, you don't need to take the ACT or SAT in order to get into this community college. We don't even need to wait for your high school board exam scores. We can let you in now. And then when the scores come in, we'll, we'll figure it out from there. We'll go from there. And so I got started at the local community college there and ended up with an associate in sciences in a um, couple semesters and learned that I absolutely love computers and research and, and the business side of it that comes together. And so I got a chance to explore a ton of things, get one-on-one -on -one time with my professors. And, and, you know, and then in Iowa, it's a beautiful system that you can articulate directly into, um, into the four-year system. So there were no barriers um, in the way at all. And so with that background, I'm a product of uh, public higher education here in the United States. Um, my doctorate's from the University of Louisville, and I had the chance to attend the University of Alaska in Anchorage as well. So what, has, so what needs to change? What's really interesting is I actually had a fabulous experience in higher education. What's, what is different today is we have these little things called smartphones, which blend our lives in all aspects, whether you can be working, but yet you're learning at the same time, you can quickly pull something up, do a little bit of research, 
be on a conference, but yet be at work, you can also, and that's all accelerated by COVID too. And then at the same time, you could actually be helping the nonprofit that you, um, that you volunteer at, helping them get their like business planning together or getting an event together or whatever it is. You can mix and merge everything. It's not about here is higher education and here is work. And then over here is life. It's about this blended environment that we live in. It's about this, you know, we have at the Institute for the Future, um, one, of my, one of our dearest scholars is Bob Johansson, who just put out a book around spectrum thinking. It's not about categories anymore. It's about the blend and the flow and the flu fluidity and the ability to be agile in this world and to be able to adapt and mutate as needed, um, kind of like viruses actually, to be able to take the, the best opportunity that you can. And I think that's what's really different for higher education is that it has always been, let me put my hat on and go to school. Let me now change my hat out and I'm going to uh, put a different hat on to go to work. And now I'm gonna get rid of all my hats or maybe put on my baseball cap and uh, go have some fun. In this world, that's all blended. And so higher education has to reinvent their system, their infrastructure to support a blended lifestyle rather than one that is just of a student where students sacrifice their work or their living in order to be simply a student. So long answer, but there was, a, I hope, quite a bit out of it. So do you think there are any particular challenges that you know, traditional colleges you know, like University of Louisville, Kentucky or Iowa or our own Princeton will face in trying to adapt to this blended environment? Yeah, there are. I think there's some significant challenges. And the challenges are that you're no longer competing in a single sector. It used to be that education institutions compete against education institutions. But in a blended environment, education institutions are competing with the gaming engines. Like, for example, Epic Games, they have an engine called Unreal Engine. And off the Unreal Engine, you can learn all about gaming. But instead of sitting in a class and learning about it, you do that in conjunction with building your own game. And then if Epic loves it, they pick it up and help you commercialize it. So you kind of get the A to Z experience um, all in one place. So it's not about just choosing a higher education institution any longer. The great part about higher education is that you can um, go someplace and be a part of a community and have that mindset where you get the opportunity to explore unlimited, have the resources at your fingertips. We can do AR and VR all we want. Getting our hands on something so that you know an airline's wing doesn't fly off because the torque wasn't adjusted quite right is crucial. We, you know, if you use a robot to conduct surgery, what happens when the power goes down and the UPS, the uninterruptible supply system, you, doesn't come back up just yet? What about those split seconds of, you know, let's say 20 seconds there? What happens to the Da Vinci robot as it's doing, as it's conducting surgery? Somebody needs to know how to get their hands dirty, get their hands in there and fix things. I'm, out to, I'm also happy to give you kind of another example, like these days, um, it's kind of like what happened in the late 90s where lots of companies started putting out their own credentials like the most popular ones used to be Cisco like Cisco certified network engineer or MCSC the micro certified network engineer. Um, that is becoming more common now because of this disconnect be, that is being perceived by companies that they're really starting to voice. Um, that what is needed is something that brings that working and learning together rather than having disconnected education happening and then disconnected work experiences happening. 
Right. So you mentioned um, like a bit about the automation. And I think it's fair to say that there is a pervasive fear um, that like increased automation will force uh, like blue collar workers out of jobs with technology being able to work longer hours, um, in general, more reliable and maybe more cost effective in the long run. Of course, it's not like a perfect solution. Again, you mentioned like, what if the power goes out? You still need people able um, to finish the operation. But how, how would you respond to those fears? And do you think the role of workers um, is in like modern society is, is changing? Yeah, I love that questioning. Um, I'm an, inter an, you know, an eternal optimist and every industrial revolution, whether it's 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0 right now, um, on the other end of it, it's always resulted in a greater number of jobs. Um, up to three, we're in the four right now. It's always been a greater number of jobs. However, the type of job and the composition of that job has always been extremely different. What's interesting is, is the underlying skills have remained the, pretty much the same, but the actual content and how you get things done is different. So maybe what we'll see at least based on our futures work at the Institute for the Future, where my research platform it sits within the Work and Learn Futures Lab that I founded back in 2016, end of 2016 and launched in 2017. You know, what we're seeing is the fact that automation, what it does first and foremost is it gets rid of all the mundane stuff because it's all programmable, right? Anything that's programmable, you can program anything that's wrote, anything you can write a recipe on or instructions on or step-by-step -step process it, we get rid of it. Is it a bad thing to have to not schedule your own meetings or is it a bad thing to have to not remember when to pay your bills so your credit goes bad, you know, doesn't go bad? I don't know. For me, those are just kind of unnecessary administrative tasks that I would love for somebody else to do and kind of not have to pay anybody else to do them. So, you know, the automation goes there. I think what's really going to be interesting is the tech policy around this. Um, so, Aditya, your area here. Um, tech policy around this, what happens to our social security systems? And this is my, the equity lens that I pull into this, to this response is, and sustainability actually. What happens to social security and Medicare if the workers are robots? So that means that if all the people at McDonald's, let's say, which I don't believe this will happen, this is just a, a scenario, if they're all replaced by robots, who's gonna pay into social security? Who's gonna pay into Medicare? How are those systems gonna sustain? How, how are we gonna take care of people with disabilities? What is that safety net going to look like? What happens if a robot goes rogue? And let's say the robot is a car, the, um, the driverless car and runs into a house and kills five people and damages the house and kills two pets. Who is liable? The robot isn't really liable. Is it the company behind that that's liable? How is insurance going to work going forward? Do you get robot insurance on all your robots? Or what about IP? If let's say robots are birthing robots in the UK, Cam Cambridge, Oxford, um, the next gen robots get produced. What happens if a robot actually invents a brand new process? Who owns that? Does it go in the mm -hmm. robot's name or does it go in the company's name or? or right. So do you think, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to ask whether you think the uh, limiting, like the uh, the limiting factor now, would be more about the actual policy regarding these robots than like our technological capability. Per se. Um, pardon me. I'm I'm sorry. I didn't quite question the. Oh, uh, whether like, do you think we have the like technological capabilities in order to create many of these robots? But the uh, 
the thing that we just stop and think about first is really the uh, the policy side. I really, really, really do. That's that's a keen insight there, Nathan. I think you know there's a lot of initiatives out there, a lot of CEOs talking about AI for good. I think we really need to understand what that means, not just for people in the policy world, but people that are in kindergarten so that they can make the right decision-making, the right critical thinking frames that they need in order to make really good decisions that focus on the good of the world. Mm-hmm. The, the place where we, in the futures world, the place where we get most of our examples and um, probably some of the most creativity that helps us understand what the future is going to be like is it's all based on signals. Signals are the building blocks of the future. So signals that come from uh, sci-fi and signals that come from the criminal world. Somehow the criminal world figured out exactly how to use WhatsApp way before everybody else did to be able to coordinate money, coordinate, um, just coordinate different kinds of operations, et cetera. And so policy, yeah, it's great to have WhatsApp. Um, You know, I have a ton of relatives, not only in India, but across the world. It's great to be able to communicate with all of them, but there's also downsides and criminals seem to find those very quickly. So we need to watch that sector and the sci-fi sector. So pivoting, you know, briefly back to something you mentioned before about companies offering their own credentials. Uh, There's been a feeling and, you know, statistics backs this up as well, that the amount of on-the-job training, especially in white-collar professions, has decreased significantly. Uh, You know, turnover has gone up and companies are trying to squeeze down workforce and labor costs uh, and think they might not be able to capture all the gains. And part of the ways that this is manifested is those micro-credentials where employers are effectively getting employees to pay for their own training rather than offering it themselves on the job. Uh, Do you think it is possible to incentivize employers to, you know, bring this on-the-job training back? Or do you think that uh, the new system can be made to work in its own way without severely burdening learners and employees with the significant cost of their own training? So I think to to what you're asking there, Aditya, um, on-the-job training made a lot of sense when an individual was committed with one company for 30 years. I can't even imagine that these days. I mean, I could... It wasn't even, I don't know, maybe it was possible in my career days, um, in my career, but I just can't even imagine that. And so when a company is invested in an employee for 30 years, it makes sense to spend, you know, money on, on the job training, no matter what it is, right? These days, employers seeing somebody, um, seeing a a worker, they're an employee for 25, 30 years, even 20 years is, I would say, probably the exception. Um, And and because of that, the -the on-the-job training, that equation needs to change. And that's what we're seeing is the change of that. So who owns this whole space of education? And how are we going to manage it going forward? What's really interesting is models already exist. So when you get into salaried employees, they get all the training they need. You go to conferences, you're sent to, um, you're sent to seminars, you do half day retreats, you, you have mandatory training you have to take at the, at the employer site, et cetera. But then when you get into smaller employers, they don't have those kinds of resources to be able to offer the time and the space that's needed. But I think they can work together. So in the past, there was a lot of poaching from smaller employers into larger employers. And I think now the idea of even a larger employer is beginning to change. Larger employer, how? Is it measured by number of employees or is it measured in um, dollars or a a different way? But a larger employer like Uber, when you start looking at their structures of number of employees versus um, contractors, I think it was really telling to see that in California, 
where the government of California tried to protect the residents by saying Uber can no longer um, only contract out their drivers, the people voted. Um, the people voted against what the government proposed and said, "No, wait a minute. We want those Uber jobs. We like those Uber jobs, and we like the flexibility that's associated with it." And what does that allow an individual to do? It allows them to get some training for the things that they really like to do. It allows them to work on their passions and have a purpose rather than being tied to a company. So I think it's both sides of it there, that um, the on the job, and I think there's tons of different models out there that can be done. Like, is it really necessary, going back to higher education and your questions, Nathan, at the very beginning of this interview, um, right now people fight to get into various universities. You jump through, I don't know, 1000 hoops. I know I'm exaggerating. In order to, you guys being at Princeton probably jump through 10,000 hoops to get there. But how about the football players and the baseball players that get recruited to the university or the top debater in the nation that gets recruited to the university or the top artist? Why can't we flip the model in higher education and higher education recruit students into their school? And higher education institutions, they can fight among themselves as to who and which student they're gonna bring in. If we flip the model and have the institutions make the best deal, the most transparent, clear, clearest deals that they can offer to learners, I think we can flip the model and integrate on the job training into those solutions so that an individual has the best experience possible without sacrificing their life. So just to clarify, in this model, would we no longer have like the four year view of college or you know the five or six year view of college where there's a point in your time where you're primarily focused on studying and then after that you might occasionally upskill but you're primarily working? Because it sounds like uh, if you have this kind of model, students don't really control when they're going to get to college if they're just being recruited by colleges and then if colleges are, are trying to offer you know, micro courses to uh, and other such, you know, mini educational opportunities. So I would say yes, because I this is my personal belief that learning is not for a concentrated period of time, it's for a lifetime. So this idea of a four year, two year, 10 year, whatever model it is, it should be not a four year degree or a two year degree, it should be a hundred year lifelong learning cycle. And that's what we need to prepare for, is a continuous lifelong learning cycle. Rather than just talking about it, we've been talking about this concept for decades, it seems like, or I've been reading about it for decades, I should say. And, but yet everywhere you go, it's always about complete this degree, complete this, complete that, graduate, graduate, graduate. And I think that's opposite to where the world is headed. I'm not saying that those milestones aren't important. I'm just saying that a blended view of those milestones where Aditya, to your point, is it really necessary to just learn in a vacuum? Or can you learn even more by blending it with what you're doing for work and what you're doing in your own free time? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Although I think the, the one pushback that I might offer, maybe this is just me, I guess I'm a, I'm a poor example, is, and you, you brought up Uber about how people wanted flexibility. But if I recall correctly, the Uber drivers themselves were largely against, uh, against the current Uber system where they wanted more stability and more benefits. It seems like in your view of the economy and your view of education, uh, you're giving up a lot of stability. And we all know that like the old days of 35 years, a company man, leave it to Beaver, are long gone and there's a lot of terrible things about those days and it's good that they're gone. But what would you say to people who say that uh, the new view of the economy gets rid of stability completely and you know, adds a lot more stress, anxiety, constantly fighting, constantly in the rat race to American life? I love that, I love that. So um, here's what I say, we need people like you, people in the, in the policy world who are actually thinking about this now 
um, before decisions get made. Because, yeah, you know, when we went into employers taking on the burden of um, employment for an individual, health insurance for an individual, retirement plans for an individual, everything became tied to an employer. Prior to that, it wasn't tied to an employer. It didn't exist in many cases. And now since like about the, I believe I, you're probably more of a policy expert than I am, somewhere around the um, 90s is where we started separating some of these benefits from the employer that an individual could actually stabilize their lives and not have to worry about where health insurance is offered. And then under the President Obama administration, there was further separation of health insurance from having to be employed. That is the design of safety systems in any country. So as the transformation happens, does everybody need to work for a large employer? Especially when large employers are shutting anyway. Look at the great movement we've had just with COVID. I mean, it's kind of been like a mini, mini view into the future to have COVID hit us. You know, it's been very sad for so many families out there. And yet at the same time, it gives us a chance to get a quick view of the future and then come back to today's society to better prepare for that future. There were programs put out by health insurance companies that said, if you get laid off, you can still keep your health insurance. You could even, by states, they started making changes of rules that, hey, you can, um, what is that called? Share your position at work, job share, and you can still keep your benefits. These are all human made rules. Every single one of these are human-made rules that humans said, this is how things are going to work. You can't get health insurance if you don't work for an employer. You can't have a retirement plan if you don't work for an employer. But yet, oh yeah, you can do a Roth if you're on your own. Oh, what do you do about someone who is staying at home and taking care of kids? Um, how do they actually build their lives? These are all decisions that we as humans make. And we have to think beyond the fact that there, it, this is the way it used to work. We have to think, here's a new way of doing things. And what would that policy look like to support a way of doing things where, you know, when viewed right now, seems like it's, uh, you're giving up stability. What happens when that's the tipping point and everyone's given up their stability? So it sounds like then that your view is that uh, the stable institution in most people's life would have been a big company like you know Ford or Prudential or something like this, and you're going to replace it with you know some sort of societal governmental safety net that'll you know provide stability where once it was provided by these large, you know, gigantic employers. So, actually, I would I would say a little something a little bit different. I would say that we have to think of different. I think the rules do come from government, whether government is the provider of all of those services, I, I would say they're not. I think there's different ways to do this. I don't know if you're familiar with another legal structure that's starting to take on steam for companies. It's called the B Corporation. And in, yeah, public benefit corporation. So actually the company that I run, socialtech.ai is a public benefit corporation why that structure it allows you to give up profits sacrifice profits for public good so there's a different way of looking at the world do you have to have the highest profit my opinion no can you sacrifice profit so that there's greater public good that's what i believe in for an equitable sustainable future that you sacrifice the profits spread them out you don't go down to zero profit. And this structure allows you to do that. So I think these, the new way of thinking is, you know, maybe we need to blur the lines a little bit, Aditya. It doesn't have to be flat for profit, flat nonprofit, flat yes, flat no, flat stability, flat no stability, flat government or no government. How about blending the lines to reflect our future? that's more on a spectrum rather than categorical.
Um, you may, okay, so I guess switching track a little bit, you mentioned uh, social.tech.ai and given that it's your Zoom name, I think that's probably a good um, transition point. Um, for the listeners who are unfamiliar, could you maybe please describe uh, briefly what social tech is, uh, maybe what your mission is? Uh, and in particular, I'm also interested to hear a bit more about Unmodel, which is described as your um, flagship product. Sure. So socialtech.ai is a public benefit corporation. We're headquartered out of Austin. And it's two words put together, actually three words, social, which refers to social processes, tech, which, which refers to technology, my background's in fiber optics, and then AI, artificial intelligence. So the goal or the mission of the company is to use AI-driven technology that we create in order to nudge human behavior, transform our society into making good decisions that support an equitable and sustainable future. Our first product, our flagship product is called unmetal.com, which is a marketplace fueled, founded and fueled by community colleges to connect learners and employers. And so the unmetal.com marketplace, the goal is to serve working learners and to help develop agile working learners. It's to bring this world of working and learning and living together for an individual in a way that works for them. So on, on unmetal.com, again, all services, all courses, all credentials, all space even, is provided by community colleges, offered by community colleges across the US. Right now, community colleges, they operate as kind of independent units. In some states, there is a system, meaning all the colleges come together. That's far and few between. Operating as independent units, you know, we already talked about this whole learning cycle for an individual moving from the two or four year or micro credentials to a lifelong. We need lifelong systems in place where people can come in and jump back out. So being able to have a network, the unmuddled network of community colleges, imagine a working learner who can attend three, four, five community colleges simultaneously at any given time. A couple of them online, two or three of them in person so that they can get the hands-on experience, they can meet other people, get that human piece, touch a wing, going back to my original example, touch a torch drink, pick it up, use the DaVinci um, computer, but you don't need to be on campus all the time. Why couldn't you do it in a high flex mode where you learn what you need to online, but then you go into any campus across US in order to practice your skills, meet the professors, come together around a research project or do what you need to. Why do you need to commit to something four years up front? Why can't you just pay as you go? And right. why- So, oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, well, that's what Unmuddle is. So that's kind of a, a quick bird's eye view of what it does for the learner. All the credits are transferable from one institution to another. So once you, have taken five, six courses and you say, you know what, I love that college, I love that professor and I love that program. Now I'm gonna redeem all my skills that I've already built, no games here. So you're not doing it in a simulated environment. You have real skills, you have real courses, you have real credits, you can get real jobs, you can get real credentials, redeem them for whatever program you want against a two-year degree, Aditya, to your question earlier, to against a four-year degree so that you can continue on on your um, expertise pathway. Go ahead, Nathan, sorry. So, yeah, no problem. So what skills or like values do you think educational institutions or systems like Unmodel should prioritize to ensure like workers continuing value? Essentially, like what is the key aspect that future-proofs the students in order for them to be able to continue entering the workforce with no hesitations and no like uh, problems and uh, for future like generations and many, many students down the line to continue gaining higher education, feeling confident that their time was well spent and well worth it. So I'm gonna give you the most generic skill set first, which is the hardest one to develop. 
And that one is learning to learn. That's the foundation of all the skills. In our society, we've been spoon fed information. You give a spoon to a kid and you ask, what's the spoon for, used for? They will say to dig, to stand on so you can reach something higher. You could even hit your sister on the head with it. It's a good weapon. You give that spoon to you or me or somebody else and you know that's even older and they're gonna say, it's to eat with. That's what you use it for and here's how you use it. They've already figured out that that's what you use a spoon for, that's the intent. So we need to be like those two and three and four year olds where learning to learn is open, whether we do it together or whether we do it on our own. But building that foundation and being open to it and understanding that there's a lot more out there than just simply what we're being told and spoon fed by certain institutions, certain professors. Great to get their views, but we need to build our own intel around what, what's important to us and what is our passion and purpose going forward. So learning to learn. After that, skills get breaking down, in my opinion, into different, different categories. You need a technical set, and then you need the professional set. So technical set, you need to know something, whether it's business, whether it's engineering, whether comp sci, whether it's policy, you need to know something. Do you need to know every single thing? My opinion, hell no. You can go to Google, figure it out. Why would you spend your time reinventing everything? Or go to DuckDuckGo, go, go anywhere you want to go and figure it out rather than reinventing. So I think that for the future, the spoon-fed piece is something we've got to get away from and start thinking in a very different way, allowing every individual the opportunity to future-proof themselves by being agile and developing that agility for individuals. Professional skills, everyone's got to know business. I mean, you, got, you have to know how to budget. You have to know, Aditya, to your point, you know, as we're... Um, the stability portion of things. You have to understand how systems are changing. So systems thinking is crucial, whether you're working at McDonald's so that you can plan your budget properly, or if you're gonna be a factory worker of the future as a you know, low level programmer or a rope pro programmer of some type. You need to understand that a factory worker of the past is still gonna require a factory worker of the future. But what is that factory worker? And what does that factory look like? So being able to make those decisions on the fly are um, part of what future proofs you for the, for the future. I kind of wanted to dig into two parts of Unmuddle's model. Uh, the first thing was you mentioned this idea of you'll take you know, a couple courses from these two community colleges, a couple courses from these one, and then build them all together. In traditional higher education, there's almost a sort of forced monopoly where you're forced to take all of your classes, your history classes, your computer science classes, whatever, from the same school. And while I agree this has always seemed kind of silly to me, there is the issue of it seems like a lot of higher ed's finances work on this model. But you essentially subsidize the more expensive, smaller classes by forcing people to take the cheaper, less expensive classes with you all at the same price, even though you know, your big massive Econ 100 class might only cost $800 per student to administer, but your small seminar French literature class might cost $3,000 per student to administer. If you succeed and create this, you know, true open marketplace of courses, uh, won't that fundamentally break a lot of higher ed finances and make some of these more niche courses radically more expensive? You're going to get me in trouble, Aditya. I think, you know, I think you're absolutely right. And I guess I come back to, is it a bad thing? Is that needed? And um, isn't it a good thing if the learner has the flexibility they need rather than the institution having the flexibility they need? Shouldn't the systems for learning be built for the learner rather than for institutional power? Why should the learner have to be the one that's pulled between turf and turf because somebody wants to run something a certain way? Why can't the learner choose their path? 
Now there's protections needed. So I don't believe just so that it's very, very clear. I don't believe in an open unregulated marketplace because it has to benefit the learner and it has to benefit society overall and the community. So it does need to be regulated in a way that allows for the learner to be able to succeed in good ways. What's really interesting is when we start looking at the cost mechanisms that support this, it's amazing how many scholarships there are out there, how much money there actually is out there to fund higher education. And, you know, and, and just even grandmas and grandpas and uncles and aunts who are like, hey, take this thousand bucks, use it towards college, use it towards school, use it towards bettering yourself. You add everything up. And what, let's say that thousand dollars actually gets you some kind of credential rather than having to take English 101, but you can learn the same thing and get English 101 and get um, Humanities 101 and maybe even 102 for that same price, what's wrong with that? So yeah, I definitely think this sounds pretty idyllic, but I think one pushback that I've heard to this kind of model is uh, the sort of pseudo monopoly that current colleges have. While it does insulate them from cost pressure, and this is a bad thing in the sense that, you know, learners have been forced to bear this ever increasing, you know, college education cost. It also means that there isn't some sort of downward quality pressure where because they're somewhat insulated from financial issues, they can ensure high quality across the board and they can ensure that classes that need to be expensive, like, you know, 12 person nursing clinicals or, you know, 15 person, you know, engineering labs that are definitely important to offer aren't radically expensive. Uh, and this is good in the sense that it means you, your options remain open. If the intro business class with 200 people costs $400 and the intro nursing class with 12 people costs $5,000, there's an obvious pressure to produce more business people than nursing majors, which is maybe not what we want. Yeah, so I think the things that you're working, that you're kind of bringing up, Aditya, from the policy perspective are, are the pieces that would need to be regulated. Quality, um, even cost up to a certain point, um, the labs and where they're built and how they're accessed and and then how higher education functions as far as their business model goes. Their business model right now, as public, if they're a public university, used to be funding comes from the states in order to fund those institutions with some from federal level. And then tuition was a teeny piece of that. In some states, um, universities are like in Washington state, um, bringing in a lot of foreign students to cover the extra costs that they have. And so quality is somehow being sacrificed anyway. And we need to make sure that the learner can get the best quality that they need. As far as the monopoly goes, I think that was really important for the higher education uh, business model for the past where they could offer flat rates, depending on whatever it is you want to do. Um, at Texas A&M, they actually mark up an engineering degree or a health-related degree to already cover for the extra costs um, that are incurred due to practicums and clinicals and engineering labs and new buildings that have new engineering labs, et cetera, that everybody else is paying for, even if they're in poli-sci. So, um, so those markups are nothing new. I think being transparent so that um, learners can understand, you, even we can see this, all students that have been rising up over these last few months saying, wait a minute, why are Zoom classes more expensive than when we had our, impress, our professor right in front of us? And wait a minute, why is the class that's taught by the TA the same price as the professor? I've even heard stories of where TAs are doing the grading, professors do the assignment, and it's like, wait a minute, they graded on something different. They've broken up the higher ed model in a in the similar to healthcare, you know, have the intake person and then have the person who, you know, comes in and checks your weight, et cetera, and then have the person who listens, inputs all the notes, then have the doctor walk in for five minutes and then leave. That whole process has actually been applied to higher education, where these different pieces and parts have kind of disconnected over the years anyway. So I think a little shakeup is not a bad thing, as long as, it's, as long as we can move to a future where 
this goes back to your stability, by the way. Um, I would say higher education institutions would need to be funded in a different way in order to protect those assets, which are crucial assets for our nation. Now, do they need to be sitting on, you know, 30 million in cash reserves? I don't think so. I think they can share those a little bit. I think, yeah, that point you just brought up is probably shared by a vast majority of Americans. Uh, just continuing on this, um, well, many, many colleges and like higher, uh, higher education institutions um, brand themselves as liberal arts colleges. And in fact, they pride themselves on the, the more well-rounded aspect of their education. Um, is this like an, an antithesis to what Unmuddle offers or do they potentially cater to different populations, do you think? So I just wanna come out and take a stand here. I'm a huge liberal education supporter. Um, I do believe that you don't just learn for a job. Um, however, I believe work is really, really important to many of us as well. And so as a huge liberal education supporter, I believe you can do, you can take liberal education that supports your entire life, whether it's work, whether it's your passion, whether it's something else. And so based on that, Unmuddle specifically, right now, the issue is people need jobs and they need stability and they don't wanna get into debt. And so through Unmuddle, they can do things a little bit at a time and not be penalized for that. And you don't have to pay application fees for every single college out there. And you can do things with one click, two clicks, three clicks, rather than eight layers that you have to go down in order to actually find the program you want and then enroll in it and then pay to enroll in it. If you get rid of the process and automate that, you can do things in a streamlined manner. So with that being said, um, Unmuddle is for all kinds of populations, whether you're trying to figure out where to go, whether you're in between jobs and you just need one skill that could, or a certification. What's really interesting is that um, the biggest population for Unmuddle is one where they already have some kind of degree. And now they need to turn around and be able to get a credential that makes them employable immediately. That to me is the most amazing part that you actually have to get a degree and then get a credential. So pay twice. What if you flipped it and got your credential first so you could be employed, not go into debt while you get your degree? Maybe you'd have a little smoother life. And I think at times people need space. You need to escape. I mean, at least like my nephews and nieces, they're like, oh my God, let me get this last three semesters done so I can get out. I just want to skate by. Well, why feel that way? It's because you're mandated through a monopoly to complete your four years or otherwise you don't get what you have been aiming for all along. But why couldn't you break up that four years among seven years if you wanted? so that you can escape away when the time is right for you and spend a semester or a quarter or even just a course with others and thinking about the creativity that you need and building upon the theories that you need and the practice you need to, to kind of get you where you're going. Okay, yeah, that does, that does make sense. I'm wondering how about the people who um, don't really know what exactly they want to do in life so, yeah. So that is where we have totally flipped the model, Nathan. So in and muddle, you don't have to commit to a two-year program, four-year program, nothing. You don't even have to commit to a credential. What you can do is to take disparate classes, take one on um, geo-tracking, take, take one on um, Google certifications, take another one on, for social media. Everything's for credit in so, so different ways. And these courses get you jobs. So you don't have to say, oh my God, how am I gonna work and support this as I'm going through? And then when you figure out what you love, that's when you make the decision. 
when you love the school, you've already tried the school. Right now, you can't try a school. You can't go and check out Princeton for a while and go check out Brown or go check out Northeastern or Northwestern or whatever it is. It would, you can if you're really rich. Yeah, I mean, you can drop everything, pick up and move, go experience something else or, but if you don't have the resources, you pretty much lose all your credits. You lose your starting point, you lose your ending point, you lose everything. So for those, which is the majority of students in higher undergrad higher ed today, you don't have to make those decisions up front. You can still pick up your skills, get your credit, put it all together and redeem it when you're ready to say, I wanna to go to that college I, now that I know, and I wanna put all of the effort towards that credential or degree. I think kind of on a similar question, because uh, I, I definitely agree, it does sound like you can shop, shop around a lot and unmuddle and you know, see what fits you. But one thing that is pretty core to a, you know, a traditional college experience is the sort of macro guidance and advising structure which you know, definitely has its flaws, but can help direct you towards you know, a productive use of your time. Uh, and if you're not a part of any individual community college or four-year institution while you're inside on Metal's program, uh, it sounds like none of them would be able to directly offer you this. Do you anticipate replacing this with Unmetal's own internal guidance and advising system? Or do you see uh, there being some sort of you know, distributed social media based or, or you know, internet based advising system based on people you know, Googling and looking for things? So the beauty of Unmetal is it, you, it relies upon the synergy between community colleges and Unmetal. So when you think of Unmetal, think of the physical infrastructure in America of about 1050 community colleges sprinkled across all the states in America. Now think of Unmetal as a digital overlay with the community colleges. So we blend the physical infrastructure with a digital infrastructure. So kind of think about both strategies of Walmart that started with stores everywhere, and then they went online, and now you can mix all the online stuff with the actual stores on the ground. Amazon's the flip of that, where they started everything online, and now they bought Whole Foods and other places, Kohl's, they have some kind of, I think, partnership with them where you can drop off and pick up, but they blended the physical and digital worlds together. So in that scenario, Aditya, the advising function takes on many different, um, many different strands. One is when you enroll in these courses, you actually do have access to the advisors on campus once you enroll, after you enroll. Prior to enrolling, Unmetal has its own set that can be relied upon. So it's the synergy, all the general questions, you don't need a college for general questions. But once you get into, so Unmuddle, let me just go make it clear. There's four things that are not yet, but that's coming. Um, right now there's courses available on Unmuddle. Services are also gonna be available on Muddle. If somebody wants an advising service from a specific college, they can call that up and have it served. There's space. Sometimes like employers that have gone virtual, they just need a place to be able to interview. And they want the top three candidates from these five classes. A community college can shortlist that for them. Pull together those 15 candidates or let's say 45 and bring them and, and have the interviews ready to go so that there's direct connect between the employer and that community college and that local space. Employers don't need to have these zillion dollar buildings in a downtown someplace because they can leverage that physical infrastructure that already exists. So when you start looking holistically at the kind of transformation um, that can take place, it's all in favor of learners to help guide them in the best way. And within a metal, we have automated guiding as well that relates paths and shows you that if you were to take this course and this will be ready by next week. If you take this course, you are this far along towards a credential or degree. 
if you go to college number one. If you go to college number five, you'll be this far along to a credential or degree. So it actually helps open your minds to different paths that are actually available out there that you wouldn't get if you declare a major and start working backwards from. So that dynamic future forward view is what we, what we try to attain to for agility. That makes a lot of sense. And I wanted to kind of you know, dig in a bit into the community college aspect because Unmuddle is partnered, I believe entirely with community colleges and some you know, impressively large ones like Pima in New Mexico. Uh, and much of your marketing material also focuses on this connection. Most of the other people in the online learning spaces like Coursera and edX are working with big name private schools or their school, their uh, programs like outlier.org, which you may have heard of, which are trying to offer four credit classes, but a very small number of tightly curated ones uh, and associated with the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, what motivated you to go with the community college model rather than the four-year public like outlier did or the big name privates like Coursera and edX did? So the mission of socialtech.ai is helping build agile, developing agile individuals for an equitable, sustainable future. And when, we, when I think of equity, immediately community colleges jump to mind. And community colleges reach out into rural areas, into urban areas, and, and provide services that are localized to their populations. But yet, programming like the cybersecurity warfare range at Pima Community College, by the way, Lee Lambert is the chair of the Unmetal Steering Council, and Tracy Hartler, Hartzler from Central New Mexico out of Albuquerque is the chair-elect. And so they have physical facilities which can be made available internationally. We're working with India and Pakistan right now to establish a, um, a quick exchange program that allows students to start their education online, come to America for a semester or two or a certain class or whatever it is and go back and have that exchange be fluid rather than um, you know, monopolized, I guess. So you could go to one college one time and another college another time and get your experiences as you need them. And so um, when I think of that equitable, sustainable future, I feel like we need to reach to more than just the big name cities and, you know, the wealthy communities. I feel like we need to be across the nation and make these opportunities for good jobs, for good lives, for good citizenship across across our nation. Uh, so in that case, it's you know, a very brief follow-up. Do you see Unmuddle continuing to only partner with community colleges in the future, uh, you know, to focus on that equity and distributed mission? Or do you see the potential for uh, you know, state four years and private colleges being included to the list uh, you know, further into the future when Unmuddle is uh, you know, more established? So I don't really know what the future holds here, Aditya, but I do know this. I, we are in support of community colleges right now. And, and that's what we wanna see is that infrastructure um, strengthened beyond any time of its existence, of its over hundred year existence. And we wanna see that any individual has access to a physical building, a physical campus that they can go to and get the highest quality learning that they could get anywhere, unmatched from anywhere. That's the goal right now. And I don't see that goal being completed in one or two or three years. So I would prefer not to go off plan, off focus at the moment. And, but there are other discussions in place, which is a little bit separate, which is around states. States themselves need the support that is, um, that allows a state to look at its boundaries and put together their safety nets in a very different way now that uh, the, stabi the um, stability is going down. So how do you make clear, transparent connections? So we're in conversation with the several states to help them do that. So kind of imagine unmuddle replicated at the state level to make those connections for people within a state. People don't necessarily want to get up and move. 
And I think we can help them with that. Uh, okay, so on a slightly different tack, an alternative to like the typical college or university route is also um, trade schools. And those are like, they train students in technical skills that are pertinent to a very like specific profession. Um, what incentive for those people or students who know kind of exactly what they want to do in life and they're very set on a path, what incentive is there to, or is there incentive to go the unmuddled style route as opposed to um, going directly to like a vocational school? Um, I love that question, Nathan. So when I use the word community colleges, I'm including community and technical colleges, but only public. So again, we're a public benefit corporation, so only public technical colleges. Um, we're interested in bringing into the fold. And that number of 1050 institutions across America, it includes several of them. Um, I'm not sure exactly what that number is because it seems to be forever changing. Mm -hmm. So I think that technical component is crucial because they have some of the best programming out there and some of the best labs and some of the best employer connections for individuals. Unfortunately, they're not very well known or they're kind of snubbed because, uh, you know, it's not a four year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... Actually, yeah. So for the, I don't know how to call it, the, I guess the future of education, but as a whole, I, I think we're just interested to know what your vision for like a unified future or the universal future of education. Are there models across the world that seem like closer to what yeah, we're trying to get to? there's steps in the right direction that we can take from other places? So the area that I specialize in is the cross, the intersection between the future of working, the future of learning, and it's really a trisection with the future of economic development. So when you start crossing those different um, futures, I think the policy piece is huge we really need to get ahead of the different alternative futures that we believe could exist. So there's the Millennium Project out there, which has laid out um, three alternative futures um, where futurists came together and, and we all inputted into what we think those three different scenarios could look like, what those three different alternative futures can look like. Well, when you cross all three futures, you come to a set of commonalities. Regardless of what future transpires, there's gonna be common features, common things that happen across all of those futures. That's where policy can jump ahead, can leap way ahead and, and help us get through the, the transformation so that we don't lose our ground. So we don't feel unstable as we go through this. And as far as um, models to your direct um, question to respond to that, I think there's a lot of good stuff in the works. Um, the, uh, what's really interesting is, is the best models right now, they kind of ground you in what's familiar, the traditional system, but then reach to the envelope <clears throat> to help transform into the future. And I would hope that we are one of those that do that. And um, uh, University of the People is one that is trying to head that way. And I think even Coursera and edX have introduced very new different ways of thinking about things. And even when you look at Udacity and Udemy and um, Pluralsight and the kinds of innovations that are going on there, I think those are all all good things for our nation. However, we have to think about those that are less educated, that aren't willing to move to wherever they need to go to. They are a big part of our society and a very, very important resource in our society. And we have to find a way to be more inclusive those systems work, these ones that I named, they work for those that are pretty much knowing what they wanna do, understand how things work, 
but there's so many of us that don't. And that's where we wanna focus is on that equity picture and how we increase that into a more equitable future. As we come to the end of our interview, um, the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. So I have to ask you, um, what's the punchline here uh, about the future of education, advice maybe for the younger generations or really anything else you feel compelled to convey? I love that question. I think the punchline is, let's not focus on the unintended consequences of the past. Instead, let's focus on the future and backcast from there. So let's get ahead of the future. Instead of saying it works like this, oh, it works like that, or this is how it is. And then we deal with all of those decisions that have been made. And that's how we all have jobs is because of all of these decisions that have been made and all those unintended consequences. That's why we're needed or we're indispensable or we're responding to that. Why not think of the future and how things could be and then develop policy and then develop systems and develop processes and focus on the 1% better. How do we get 1% better? How do we get 1% better rather than this big ambitious goal? And once you hit it, you go back to the way things were. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Dr. Jessel, is there any way for our viewers and listeners to follow you and maybe learn more about your work? or anything in particular um, they should check out as we wrap up our conversation? Sure, they can, you all can um, check out the Institute for the Future, the Work and Learn Futures Lab specifically. Um, you can even learn about all these future skills. We have maps that have been made. We've done primary research on the skills needed for the future and how they, how they lay out in different ways and you know, what's, what's really needed. And so Institute for the Future, it's out of Palo Alto, California, and um, you'll love the research. It's crazy. And so much of it is free. And it is a nonprofit, by the way. Another, um, another place you can, um, is, I'm on LinkedIn, so I, I don't do much more of social media, but you can follow socialtech.ai, you can follow unmetal.com. Um, we have YouTube channels up as well that describe how Unmetal works and yeah. So we're out there. We're just starting uh, to get out there. Perfect. Um, this has been a fascinating chat. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to our friends at Envision also for collaborating and allowing this to happen. Uh, follow us on policypunchline.com. Watch this interview and others on YouTube and tune in on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And then if you're interested in tech, policy, ethics, or the intersection of all three, I really encourage you to come out to some of Envision's live events. You can learn more about those at envision-future.org uh, or reach out through Policy Punchline. Uh, thanks again, Dr. Dassault, for speaking to us. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure we'll be hearing about your work soon. Thank you so much, Aditya. Very much appreciate it.